produced by Imagine, your resource for early childhood music therapy. Imagine is produced by Della Vista Publisher and can be found on the web at www.imagine.musictherapy.biz. This podcast is entitled Clinical Decision Making in Music Therapy and presented by Carol Ann Blank. Carol is a doctor candidate at Trexel University. She also is the manager of special needs services at Music Together in Princeton, New Jersey. Carol Ann works with children and their families in both group and individual settings. Clinical decision-making is an important component of providing music therapy interventions. This podcast shares the author's thoughts about the clinical decisions she makes when working with a mother-child diet in an individual music therapy setting. I work with young children, birth to early elementary age, and their parents in individual music therapy sessions. Within the course of my work, I make decisions regarding various aspects of treatment. This is called clinical decision-making. Allow me to share an example of how I utilize clinical decision-making in my music therapy practice. Sophia, not her real name, is three and does not communicate verbally. She also does not have full control of her arms or legs. This is a recent development. She was a typically developing child until a few months before I started working with her. Her mom and I have been working to help Sophia express herself during music therapy. During our sessions, Sophia's mother and I sing songs, make silly sounds, we call that vocal play, and play instruments. Since Sophia and I do not know each other well, I rely on her mother to help me understand what Sophia is telling me through her nonverbal behavior. I'm not particularly interested in how Sophia expresses herself during music therapy, just that she has the opportunity to express herself in whatever way she can or chooses to. I simply create opportunities for her to contribute to the musical conversation. Creating opportunities for Sophia to express herself within the music is not a simple task, of course. Myriad decisions have to be made. What songs will her mother and I sing? How many times will we sing them? How do I know when to lower the volume of my voice or change from a smooth and connected legato contour to a detached staccato one? What instruments will I use? And for how long? Do I place these instruments within Sophia's reach or directly into her hands? There are also questions about what happens after music therapy. Do I make suggestions to Sophia's mother about using music in the intervening days? How do I support her mother's efforts to connect emotionally with Sophia through experiences of music? What tangible items like CDs or songbooks, props or instruments can I suggest when mom asks? These pragmatic questions have deep roots in music therapy theory and practice. Sears's processes of music therapy provides one way to consider these and other important questions when implementing music therapy. He identified three integral classifications within the processes of music therapy. These are structure, self-organization, and relating to others. He also wrote that the music therapist is an active participant in therapy. It is the therapist's responsibility to make decisions. For the purposes of this podcast, 
I'm going to refer to the processes by which music therapists choose what to do in the course of therapy as clinical decision-making. It's important to differentiate clinical decision-making in music therapy from clinical decision-making in other domains. For example, in nursing literature, clinical decision-making is defined as a unique process that involves the interplay between different kinds of information. This can include knowledge of pre-existing pathological conditions, explicit patient information, nursing care, and experiential learning. I suspect that music therapists, too, may value different types of information when they engage in a clinical decision-making process. For example, music therapists consider the pitch of a child's vocalization as a piece of useful clinical information. Are they vo vocalizing in the key? What interval from the tonic? When does the vocalization occur? At a pause during the penultimate measure or after the song has ended? I observe Sophia's nonverbal behavior, including how she moves parts of her body, and use this information to help determine if she's overstimulated, uncomfortable, or attentive. I notice that she closes her eyes tightly and pulls her arms away from the instrument when she is overstimulated. Mom and I decide that when this occurs, we will stop playing and wait quietly until she opens her eyes again. We might sing softly about too much sound. We breathe with her to let her know we hear and respect what she is telling us about her experience of the sound at that moment. This is new territory for Mom, this way of understanding how her daughter is communicating, so we take our time with this. Music therapy relies on the clinician's choices of how the elements of music are incorporated into the sessions. Abrams discusses the unique musical clinical domain of knowledge that music therapists possess. That is, the elements of music, melody, harmony, rhythm, and timbre, are the stuff of our work, what makes music therapy unique among interventions that are appropriate for addressing clinical needs of young children. When we choose one melody or harmony over another, or choose to accelerate or decelerate a tempo, we're making a clinical decision. I suspect there are reasons we make the decisions we do, but I'm uncertain as to what the reasons are. According to Abrams, at least some of the clinical decisions music therapists make are aesthetically driven. It is music's beauty that connects people. And that may be the goal of, for, of music therapy for a parent-child dyad or, or a group of parents and children. Sophia's mother plays the Music Together Flute Collection CD throughout the week and tells me which songs they enjoy. I incorporate these songs into our sessions, making sure to add new verses to broaden and deepen Sophia's experience of active music making. During one session, we sang Sandpiper. Sophia smiled as I held her and we ran toward her mother and then ran around the room like sandpipers. We pretended to be sandpipers sleeping by the sea and then woke up excitedly when Sophia opened her eyes after the song ended. 
Then we sang the first verse over again, quicker this time, and with more energy and a big flourish at the end of the final phrase. I was aware that I was capitalizing on the inherent time-ordered quality of the music to frame Sophia's game of chase with her mother. This is an example of experience and structure from Sears' processes in music therapy, in which the individual is committed to the experience of music and shows this through behavioral means. For Sophia's experience of Sandpiper, this meant watching her face for clues to her affective state. Sophia moved her arms when we paused in our game of chase, and when I took that as her cue for us to continue, she smiled. She giggled when Mom pretended the egg shakers were sandpipers running on her legs and arms and belly. We continued our highly active musical game until we started to see a decrease in Sophia's attention. In this way, too, Sophia led us, but I created the container for this experience to happen. Dr. Carl Polnack of the Boston Conservatory spoke at the Music Together Annual Conference in May 2014 in Princeton, New Jersey. In his address to this community of early childhood music specialists and music therapists, he described how music serves as the container for emotional experience. I thought of this a great deal as I considered my work with Sophia and her mother. In a very real sense, the music that we created during our sessions and the music they listened to outside of music therapy provided a container through which Sophia and her mother could learn to relate to each other. Their shared experience of music held the emotions that neither could articulate. I believe clinical decision-making in music therapy has not yet received the attention it deserves. This may impact our ability to more fully own the unique processes of music therapy with our youngest clients and their families. As we learn how to articulate our clinical decisions, I believe this will help us as we learn how we make the moment-by-moment -moment choices of intervention in music therapy with a parent-child dyad. And I believe a fuller understanding of this would help early childhood music therapy, you know, how and why it works, will emerge. I would love to hear your thoughts on this important matter. Thanks for listening to this Imagine podcast produced in 2013.